Welcome to the eLaborate Topics Podcast, where we focus on lab-specific strategies for medical laboratory professionals. We're proud to be the healthcare detectives that work behind the scenes to get the results needed to influence medical decisions. Let's grow together and jump right into the lab. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the eLaborate Topics Podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Stephanie Whitehead. For those of you tuning in for the first time, I'm your podcasting laboratory leader and co-host for our weekly podcast. If you haven't tuned in before, the Elaborate Topics podcast is a weekly show where myself and my two co-hosts, Taiwana Wilson and Lona Small, bring you topics related to the laboratory and the leadership to help you excel inside and outside of the laboratory. So like we always say, don't be stingy. Share this episode with your colleagues and your laboratory friends and join us on our Elaborate Topics group on LinkedIn. I'm really excited for today's show, so I want to get straight into it because I'm rejoined by a special guest to the show, one of the most gifted voices in the laboratory medicine profession, Dr. Rodney Rohde. How are you today? I'm great, Stephanie. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Welcome back. Uh, for our other listeners, Dr. Rohde has joined us already this season. Um, if you didn't check it out, I'd encourage you to go back and check out season two, episode 20 where we talked about the path to least antibiotic resistance. It was a very good and informative episode. Uh, but for those listeners who may have been living under a rock and may not know Dr. Rodney Rohde, uh, take a minute and reintroduce yourself to our listeners. Sure, I'd be happy to. Again, thanks, Stephanie. Um, really, my background is hybrid, and so that's how I typically introduce myself for about a decade out of my bachelor's and master's degrees, which were in microbiology and virology, I worked for the Department of Health in Austin, Texas, as a, a public health microbiologist and a molecular epidemiologist, uh, which kind of crossed over into zoonosis control. So did a lot of really cool things with rabies and other types of agents like that. And perhaps we can come back sometime and talk about that effort. It, it really is a unique program that helped eliminate canine rabies from Texas. Uh, and after that, uh, after about a decade of doing that and doing a little bit of work with CDC, I had an opportunity to move into academia. And so I came back to my alma mater here at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. And I have kind of worked my way up the ranks and I'm currently Regents Professor and Chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program, which is a bachelor's degree for medical laboratory uh, professionals, and do a you know odd variety of other things. I'm the associate director for the Translational Health Research Center. I'm an uh, an associate adjunct faculty member for Austin Community College, which is kind of near and dear to my heart. I still teach there, kind of intro micro and other courses for allied health professionals in the associate degree area. So staying busy. Uh, and and really excited to join Stephanie because the past two or three years, I've really become passionate about science communication and health literacy. So these types of opportunities are critical for our professionals to participate in. So thank you for having me on. Well, no problem. I'm excited for this episode today because the last two years, as we all know, in the laboratory community, community let alone healthcare, have been really challenging. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed so much about the way we do our work. Um, it has exhausted people, has burnt people out. And right when we start to ease back into what everybody previously was calling our new normal, 
uh, we start hearing about another emerging disease in the media, uh, uh, emerging threat for Americans and worldwide, really, uh, of monkeypox. And so this is a virus that is not new, but it has taken over a good part of the news uh, here lately and infected more than 7,000 Americans. So I wanted to bring Dr. Rohde back and pick his brain and uh, let our listeners hear everything that we need to know about monkeypox. So you're the expert, Dr. Rohde. I'm going to ask you, uh, give give us everything we need to know. What is monkeypox? (laughs) Is it different than chickenpox? Is it different than smallpox? How is it transmissible? What are the symptoms? What do we need to know? Sure. Great. Thank you for that wide open platform. I'm going to take you up on it. Um, So again, just stop me or I'll try to pause briefly in case you have any questions to follow up with. But I do want to, um, again, highlight our profession and thank all of you who are out there in the medical laboratory and public health laboratories who are fighting every day. Uh, You know, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID has not gone away. As you know, it has calmed down a little bit. But it it tends to be going endemic now, and I think we'll be dealing with this for the foreseeable future. So, again, I know it's been a tough two and a half years, and I really can't thank you enough as both a um, a citizen and as a professional. But, yeah, so uh, back in May, uh, we had really what popped into our news kind of headlines being monkeypox, which popped up uh, in a Boston, Massachusetts individual, a gentleman. And that was really what we think is our first index case of this particular virus in the United States. Now, as Stephanie mentioned, it is not a new virus. So this is not like SARS-CoV-2. It's not novel. Uh, Monkeypox is in the family Poxviridae. Uh, So it's an orthopox virus. And I think probably what got people's attention early on is it is a cousin to smallpox, which has been eliminated Uh, through vaccination uh, back several decades ago. So I think that caught people's attention. So it is a cousin to smallpox, but it's nothing like smallpox. And I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, It is also in the family, if you've ever heard of vaccinia virus and and cowpox and things like that. So it's in that family. Um, We have about to date, as of this morning, I think we're over 14,000 cases now in the United States. Every state but Wyoming Uh, has indicated uh, cases. Now, again, remember, um, testing in the United States for this, we can talk about briefly in a moment, but it's passive. You know, unless you have symptoms and lesions and things like that, uh, you may not be getting tested. So, uh, as always, I tell people uh, data around testing numbers, you know, uh, is current with respect to what we're testing. Uh, It may not be perfectly accurate because we have a passive surveillance system. Good news, okay, the good news is that monkeypox, um, at least this strain that's out of the West African clade of viruses, is only about 1% uh, mortality rate, so it's really low. There have been zero deaths in the United States, so that's extremely different than uh, the COVID experience. There's another strain that is up to about 10% uh, fatal, and that's called the Congo Basin or Central Africa strain. We, do, we don't have that in this outbreak. And this goes back a while. So this particular virus was first isolated in a, a monkey population in 1958 in Africa. And uh, it's, it's a misnomer, Stephanie. It's actually probably should be more likely called rodent virus, 
because monkeys are actually not a true reservoir. Uh, they happen to be infected back in that time frame, and the virus was isolated and named that. But in reality, monkeys are not like an endemic reservoir. They can become infected, but they don't carry it uh, endemically forever. So really more likely rodents are the primary um, animal vector. And later in the um, 70s, we had our first human um, isolation of this virus. And really it was endemic in the African countries for many, many decades. It has been in the US. Um, we had it back in 2003 when a um, again a population of animals from Ghana um, were being housed and they ended up uh, that that particular research animal ended up kind of being imported in the US and so we had some outbreaks in Texas and elsewhere that got into uh, prairie dogs of all things but it died out it never got into any any human being issues any major fatalities or anything like that and then we've had some other travel like so importing from travel people that went to different places and brought it back to the u.s as recently as 2022 uh, in 2018 we've had that as well as in other countries but it's really endemic in that area okay so what's going on now well uh, there was uh, an event in uh, other parts of the world and you can again you can find this in the literature now if you do a quick a search uh, at, a, at a different conference uh, an event is primarily being spread uh, in uh, the gay and men who have sex with men and, and other LBGTQ community because of the close contact. So I'm going to transition into transmission now. So historically, this virus has been spread through animal contact. And again, this is going way back decades or through perhaps respiratory acquisition. It can be acquired through respiratory droplets but it really is more difficult. It's not an efficient uh, transmission through the respiratory route. It really has to be close um, contact either with an animal or with another human being. And it's skin to skin contact for prolonged periods of time with open pustules or open lesions. Um, it could also be skin to fomites, uh, which is a term uh, for, for inanimate objects like bedding, uh, linens, clothing, uh, perhaps surfaces and things like that. So that is the primary route is that skin to skin, person to person through very typically very close contact. So it's not a defined sexually transmitted infection like you might think about with gonorrhea, herpes, uh, things like that, or chancroid. It's more of a intimate closeness, intimate behavior. So I want to get that straight. Um, uh, we, we need to make sure we do not go down the same trail that we did with HIV back in the 70s and 80s. This is not about a particular group of, of individuals. This can be um, acquired by anyone with close contact in that way. Now, it happens to be that it is in those populations. So if you look at the guidelines around CDC and all the public health entities, you know, we are sending out those types of health alert uh, messaging that if you are in that particular community and you and you see lesions or pustules or you have um, certain fever and flu-like symptoms, which is the more initial type of infection, then you should be tested. Uh, if you know you've been in contact 
with someone who uh, is monkeypox positive, or if you've traveled uh, to those types of endemic areas or been around animals of that type. So those are kind of the primary um, transmission pieces. Signs and symptoms, I kind of just mentioned it, starts off like flu, a common cold, fatigue, fever, perhaps those other types of gastrointestinal issues. Um, but then it, it will typically within seven to 10 days show up as lesions um, or pustules. And really you're infectious until those sca they scab up, dry up and fall off so you have new skin. So two to four weeks is kind of the recommendation uh, through most experts. And really the other good news about, uh, I mean, if you're gonna talk about any good news about this is that it typically resolves um, in two to four weeks in most individuals. Really the most kind of problematic things that happen are secondary infections. So if you're having, for instance, really nasty skin infections, pustules and things like that, especially in sensitive areas around the genital area and things like that, people do sometimes get uh, secondary bacterial infections, cellulitis uh, and things like that. So uh, in general, again, that fatality rate's really low, uh, but it's, I keep telling every interview I do, I keep talking about, it's a concern. It is a public health concern, but I do not believe it's at the rate of, of being alarmed or like a national emergency. I mean, I know the declaration has been declared. Really that was to help open up the vaccine stockpiles uh, so that we could distribute that more quickly, open up the testing infrastructure. We're moving uh, quickly uh, to let commercial labs do more testing. We kind of learned that lesson, Stephanie, with, with COVID. Mm -hmm. Let's get it out of just, you know, CDC and public health and let commercial labs help us. So let me, let me stop talking because uh, <laughs> I've been rambling here and see if you have any follow-ups or any other routes you want me to talk about. Well, I'm happy to hear that you said, you know, it's a it's a public concern and so we should pay attention to it. You know, COVID uh, took a really quick turn and probably because it was so novel and new into an outbreak in a pandemic. Um, and, you know, we hadn't had really a, a huge global pandemic, you know, before COVID like that, that I think got that level of attention. So it is great to hear that this isn't at that level. But I'm curious, uh, because you are so well versed in this in this area, uh, scale to zero to 10, zero being like, ah, who, ah, who cares? And 10, right. you know, you know, lock your door, lock yourself back in your house right. <laughs> and, you know, stay out, stay out inside. Uh, what is your level of concern for the spread of monkeypox right now? Great, great question. Great question. So I'm going to give you two answers. If you are in that risk population, if you are in the LGBT community and um, you are practicing different types of intimate behaviors, then the risk is the concern would be more like a six or seven, maybe even as high as an eight, because it is happening. Uh, we are seeing hundreds of cases in most states, if not thousands. Texas has over a thousand now. The big states, again, population, because it's bigger, California, New York, Florida, Texas, even Georgia now is over 12, 1400 cases. You know, it's enough of cases out there to be watching and to be careful and to be testing and to be concerned. If you're not in that population, uh, uh, you know, it's probably more like a four, four or five, you know, be alert. And again, I, I really want to be clear here. There, there, there is no really 
boundaries of thinking about this being spread. It's just that it is within that particular transmission route right now. But if it's, and we're already seeing this, right? So we've had um, three or four children now. We've even seen a dog turn up positive in the U.S. with this. So it, it can get out of and get into any population group, any population group. So it's, it's, as I often tell people, viruses really don't have a bias. They don't care what we look like. They don't care how much money we make. They don't care, you know, what we practice in our personal habits or into our behaviors. They're just out there to, to infect and amplify and to do things. So we, we need to be concerned and watching it, you know, as a population really globally. But if you're in those areas where we're seeing the most transmission, then, you know, you really want to be alert. Perhaps you want to get tested if there's any concern. Um, because, again, Stephanie, the, the, the way we get ahead of this, which we couldn't do with COVID, because once it became blown out uh, and it was asymptomatic transmission, people didn't even know they had it. You know, it's really hard to contact trace, right? It's almost impossible. But this we can, um, if we can identify through testing, via symptoms and signs, know that it's a positive case, then that individual can isolate and perhaps be vaccinated and treated if needed. And those close uh, family, partners, uh, colleagues, mm -hmm. anyone that's interacting with that person that's really you know, identified as a close contact, then they could also perhaps be vaccinated and, and quarantine for a while to make sure they're not uh, showing any lesions or pustules or things like that. And so you can, you can use classic public health uh, ring vaccination techniques to kind of get ahead of that and to kind of stomp it out. Uh, it's when you can't do that, that it's really difficult to stop an outbreak. So I still, you know, I'm still holding uh, hope that we can get ahead of this and, and start tapping it down at least. It's going to take a while now that we've got, you know, 14,000 cases and it's it's around and it might be very difficult to completely squash it. But I do believe we can knock it down, lower it down and perhaps reach zero if we can get, you know, boots on the ground and the type of sustained efforts that it would take uh, to isolate people and, and be transparent. You know, people have to be transparent and honest and follow those public health guidelines to to get this thing under control. But it is not um, an aerosolized, you know, issue like like SARS was. We have vaccines already. Uh, we have T-pox, which is an antiviral that you have to get special permission for. But we do have therapy and it resolves. Right. So if you can even just get people quarantined and not interacting with people in a close way, you can stomp, stomp it out that way as well. So we have that ability. And we also have the infrastructure. Again, one of the critical lessons we should be learning from COVID and even further back is that, you know, we should be prepared, right? We, we, we know what it takes to get vaccines out. We know what it takes to roll testing out. Good, strong public health uh, science communication, accurate uh, information so that people know to test and how to test and how to get vaccines. We should be rocking and rolling on that way quicker than we were with COVID. I'm glad to hear you uh, say some of these things. Uh, it's almost acting as a little bit of a myth buster to, I think, some of the stuff you've seen online. Um, and so now I kind of want to get into like some practical steps. You know, sure. uh, there was a 
viral video that made its way around of a, a gentleman who was uh, who had an active monkeypox infection and uh, left quarantine to take a trip to McDonald's. And uh, it, it got a lot of traction online. Uh, many commenters asking, well, what about the cashier who took your credit card and all of these things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I kind of want to get into um, some practical precaution steps. And you kind of mentioned some of these, but uh, what do you know we kind of need to do and be aware of? You mentioned um fabrics and things you know me myself i think you also were traveling in a couple of weeks so hotel bedding um i also have two children under the age of eight and school has started back we've heard that this i think you just mentioned this was more severe in children so what are some practical tips that we can take uh to just be safe during this time sure great again really good conversation piece to talk about here so first let me just mention um you know when this is over and you're, you know, in three days, you're like, what did he say? You know, it, it's really helpful to go to the um, Texas Department of Health website uh, or any, I'm sorry, any state public health department website, which is also tied to the CDC. And then other reputable places, right? Make sure you're going to places like the Mayo Clinic and and things like that so that you can get good information around this question because it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about that particular? So I didn't see that video, but what I would say is it's unfortunate, first of all, that anyone who has an active case of monkeypox, of SARS, even of influenza, right? My wife always tells me at home, isn't it, isn't it common sense that people should not go into work and school if they're, you know, coughing and hacking and throwing up fever? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. It's common sense. I, I you know, for for so long, it's, it's been such a struggle to get people to understand that we should be doing this anyway all the time. It's common courtesy. It's a good public health golden rule to stay home. I know it's hard if you have to work and you have bills, so I'm not going to go down that road. I understand that. But the best way is to stay put. Uh, that's rule number one. So if you have monkeypox and you're in that two to four week window where your lesions haven't cleared up, you really shouldn't be out and about. You should be home and you should even be staying away from close contact with family members and colleagues. That's just that's just a that's just the answer. Mm -hmm. That's the honest answer. That's number one. Uh, What about if it happens or if you're concerned as a citizen and you're traveling in your schools uh, in in other places? Monkeypox uh, is a DNA virus. It's really the only way it's going to get into the environment is one through open pustules or fluid for example, is getting on surfaces, linen, that sort of thing, or potentially through coughs and sneezes if you're, you know, depositing it somewhere without using a, a, a tissue or something like that. So good cough protocol, sneeze protocol is always important. Etiquette covering, you know, if you don't have anything, even your even your uh, armpit kind of shoulder sleeve is better than just coughing and sneezing into the environment, especially if you're around people. Always important. Good health practices. Um, other stuff, you know, I wouldn't go uh, down the road of just really being paranoid about everything that you touch, but hand hygiene is like 99% effective for most disease acquisition. Wash your hands often. You know, you got in, you got into the habit of perhaps um, gels and sprays of different types. This virus is very wimpy. In actuality, it can stay in the environment for a little time, 
Uh, but most FDA, I'm sorry, back up, most EPA types of disinfectants will kill it. Even the UV light from sunlight will help kill it. So it's actually not something that's going to just be everywhere, right? But again, if you're concerned, wash those hands, use those, those gels and those types. And if you're in a place where you're working or things like that, use a typical disinfectant to wipe down uh, counters, make sure it's safe if, it, if it's like food uh, centers and things like that. And just be wary of your hands, be wary of that type of interaction. That's probably the number one piece of advice along with staying home if you're infected and, and actively infected. So I'll stop there and see if you have any other thoughts uh, about that piece, because that is an important piece for the public to understand. Well, that's good to know, because I was about to go out and get a set of travel sheets for myself. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's interesting, Stephanie. You know, my wife and I, we travel a lot, just like you do, not not just for professional work, but but, but pleasure in you know, traveling and fun. We have done that. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think there's anything wrong. You know, people mm -hmm. might think it's silly, but I think bringing your own sheets is not a horrible thing. At least, yeah. you know, if you're if you're just unfamiliar with the environment, and you're worried about it. I mean, who cares? It's mm -hmm. your body. It's your health. If that's what you want to do, do it. We've done it, especially when we traveled abroad. Um, I often will tell people again, this is just from hearing other people. Um, the uh, the bedspreads and things like that, you know, you may not want to pull that all the way up to your mouth. You might want to fold that down or like halfway so it's not in your face. Uh, and then, you know, use your own sheets if you want to. Uh, that's fine. Your own, I, We take our own pillows sometimes, so we have our own pillow. Mm -hmm. But but even then, sometimes we'll we'll put our own case on it, if, a pillowcase, if we're worried about it. Again, I'm not I'm not a paranoid traveler. Uh, I just try to use common sense, good common risk assessment. If it's in a place I'm not comfortable with or I'm not aware of, then I'm going to maybe take a few more precautions. But in reality, you know, probably not a huge problem. Uh, most hotels now are really, you know, they've bought into good sterilization, good laundry practices because they want you coming back. I mean, that would be a nightmare headline if you had a hotel chain that wasn't taking care of their linens, for example. So I think I think we're in a good place uh, awareness wise for these types of things now. That's a really good point. Now, I do want to ask you, I think uh, in the beginning, COVID got a, a little bit of a way from us because we didn't have the best coordinated effort uh, uh, globally uh, that we needed to really just try to sustain it early up front. So what is your perspective from a global aspect of how we how each country has been addressing monkeypox, either in terms of reporting um, or vaccine status and all of those things. Where, where do we stand globally? Oh, boy. How much time do you have? <laughs> well, I think you've only got a little. you got less time than I do. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, again, let me let me start this way. Um, there is always more we can do better. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I won't go too much into COVID, but certainly you know, this wasn't just about COVID. This was about decades and decades of many people like myself and many people way smarter than me, other experts that are in this this um, trench warfare of infectious diseases for decades, screaming about public health funding and communication and um, stockpiling and testing capabilities and all the types of things we saw happen in real time. And a lot of people are angry about it and got mad at just the CDC or just this or that entity. 
Well, I can tell you from experience, right, 30 years of working in this area is that we've been screaming about this forever, um, but we need funding. We need attention uh, from many entities, not just the government, but many entities to take it seriously. And so that's just one quick soapbox message is that we know, <laughs> we know there's issues and we've been screaming about it for a long time. And so if nothing else, hopefully this will and monkeypox is a perfect example. Just you, you said it yourself. People are kind of done with COVID, mm -hmm. but it's still here, yeah. right? And we've got flu coming, and we've and we've got some other items we can talk about today. And, and tuberculosis and antibiotic resistant infections. I mean, these things are around us every day, and we know we know about it. And so, I need the public to understand that one of my favorite quotes. It's not mine, but it is somewhat similar to what I've talked about for three decades. Is Everything we do um, before a pandemic really gets declared seems alarmist. Everything we do after seems over overworking it, right? So, I mean, we, we just can't be perfect. You can't know exactly every agent that's going to blow up on American shores, but we can be better prepared. Uh, and the public has to understand that when something like SARS-CoV-2, which is a novel virus that no one in the world had seen, we were learning as we went. Could we have done a better job of communication? Yes. Could we have done a better job with testing rollout? Yes. Have we learned some lessons? God, I hope so. Um, because there are better ways, like, like allowing commercial labs to get involved. The CDC was not built to be a, a million test producing ramp up overnight. That's just not what they do. They identify outbreaks and they try to work with really dangerous pathogens and deal with outbreaks to determine what's going on. They are not your lab core, your quest, or even a hospital lab. They're not prepared uh, to do that type of work. They've also had their agency stripped of personnel and funding for decades again. So again, kind of getting on a, on a soapbox here, but we can do better is the message. And so what I try to tell the public is it's also your responsibility to be more health literate, to quit spreading videos and misinformation and outright false information just because it's fun to do. Quit sharing it. Quit, quit going down that road. Stop and ask yourself, who is this person making this video or this ad or offering to test you when you don't even know if they're a credentialed laboratory professional? I mean, treat that just like you would a phone call like a spam i mean just stop sharing it stop pushing it and go to those reputable sites and try to get the right information talk with your healthcare practitioners talk with physicians talk with other people and, and try to gather the information in a way that can be more helpful and not feed that fire of misinformation and outright false information it is a true pandemic a global pandemic, and we, we've got some work to do, mm -hmm. all of us, uh, both sides. It's, mm -hmm. not just a, it's not just the science side or the health mm -hmm. side. It is the public's responsibility to help. Well, I tell you, if you missed the first part of this podcast and just jumped in on that part, that little piece of sermon from Dr. Rohde is all you needed to hear, uh, which is uh, the spread of false information is as much a pandemic as these viruses are. It is. Uh, so, you touched on something that I kind of want you to expand on, if you can, uh, preparation. And you, you mentioned flu coming and we already we still have COVID around. 
Um, I know that it is not a, a direct indicator, but Australia has just reported its worst flu season um, in the past five years. Uh, and and I know sometimes U.S. will look at what's mm-hmm. going on in other countries as an indicator of how our flu season will be. This podcast is being recorded in the fall of 2022. So we are approaching our fl- flu season, our third flu season with both flu and COVID combined. So if you can l- let our listeners know a little bit about how we can prepare, maybe what she, we should expect. Should you get the flu vaccine and the COVID booster together? Uh, uh, just let us know what your thoughts are. Yeah, great question. So um, let me first start with uh, just kind of general flu things. So again, not to make this about totally about flu, but influenza is an RNA virus. It's just like COVID, SARS-CoV-2. RNA viruses are notorious to mutate and change. And that's why you know, when people ask, do I have to get the vaccine again this year? Typically, it's probably a good idea, uh, especially if not that, then every other year, you know, I would highly recommend, or if there's a really bad year with a new strain coming, you really need it. Um, so flu's endemic, uh, right? It's it's just one of those things we've grown to live with. We're probably headed that way with COVID. And so, you know, it kind of is going to be that way. That's the way viruses work. They kind of become endemic. They actually don't want to kill you. They want to to change just enough to make life miserable, but they want to be able to, for you to stay alive as a host and transmit, you know, further along the chain. So that's just a little bit about flu and we are coming up. And and I think what people have seen in the past two seasons, and you can look at this globally, most of us believe that because of the use of, of strong masking when it was especially mandated and just being away from people, remember we isolated we all at least somewhat were careful in crowds and that really was pretty strong for about a year year and a half it's weakened obviously now but uh, that's probably what kept our flu seasons really really low uh, for 2021 and 21 22 but we are kind of wondering this year 22 23 what's going to happen right most people are not masking like they used to uh, we are not staying home. Uh, we're traveling. We're excited. And, and I'm part of that, too. Uh, but I will tell you, I am adopting masking when I'm on a plane, when I'm in a subway. Uh, and even if I'm in a big you know, room and I don't know a soul, right, I don't know anything about their practices, I still might wear a mask. Other times I'm not as worried. Right. So that's kind of my own personal look at it is I've been saying this for two and a half years. We didn't even need the government to tell us this. It's about personal risk assessment, risk assessment, risk reduction. What are you willing to do, Uh, not just for you, but for my mom, who is a recovering cancer patient? So when I know I'm going to see her for two or three weeks before I know that trip, if if it's something I'm planning, I'm being really careful again, right? Otherwise, I may not be as crazy careful. Uh, unless I have a reason to, right? So that's just my own kind of take on it. I'm back. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm boosted, and I'm personally, I'm going to keep doing that, right? I've had COVID. I actually got it in January, Omicron season, and it wasn't a big deal. Thank God for vaccines and therapeutics. I um, it felt like allergies, kind of nasty allergies, and I was over it in about a week. Um, so I have had it. Uh, my wife had it this past May, and we both had kind of a similar experience, thankfully. Uh, but what about my mom? What about her dad, who is uh, pretty immunocompromised? We are uber careful um, when we think about our parents or other people like that. So for me, 
And I hope the public, they would always consider that uh, just accountability, that golden rule of public health of try to do no harm to others. It's not just about you, right? It's also those around you. So what, what's coming? I think flu will be higher this year just for those very reasons I told you. We're moving around. We're back in school. Uh, we're not mandating masking. People may have let their flu vaccine slip for the last two years, right? So if you're concerned and you have no major health reasons or other reasons not to do so, then I would recommend getting a flu vaccine uh, to prepare. I often wait I don't do it right now because really we've not seen a lot of flu activity. They, they've got it out. You can get it right now. I tend to wait to mid-October um, just because it will give you a longer span of protection. It'll get you into like March, April, and that's usually when flu season's over. That's just my own personal recommendation. Uh, and that's something I do. It's a, it's flu virus is not a living virus. You can't get the flu from the vaccine any more than you can get COVID from that vaccine. Uh, that's all misinformation. Um, so it's very safe. It's been used for decades and decades. This year, we're worried about uh, an A strain, which is a pandemic strain, uh, H3N2. And the vaccine, there's a quadrivalent, which has four uh, strains in it, 2A, 2B. There's a trivalent, which has 2A, 1B strain in it, and um, different varieties. So you can kind of, it depends on your local pharmacy or physician, you can kind of pick which one they may recommend if you're 65 or older, or it kind of depends on your age, but they're all safe and all effective uh, to receive. The one that's, um, so right now there is no combo vaccine, Stephanie, mm -hmm. but I tell you, uh, there are some makers out there. The military is also part of this. They were approved, I forget the date now, it's been nine months ago, maybe a year ago. They are working on a trivalent vaccine for COVID, flu, and RSV. Uh, three nasty respiratory viruses, and I really hope, I really hope the clinical trials work and it looks good because no one wants to get a shot all the time. It'd be nice to have one shot, say in October, that kind of covered us until the till the next year. Uh, that's my hope. I also have great excitement and hope with the mRNA technology because I think we're going to start seeing that technology used for things like flu and maybe even going backwards and looking at HIV and, and other things like tuberculosis. I mean, I really think that technology is going to give researchers the opportunity to go retrospective and go, well, we kind of gave up on this, but now let's try this technology to see if we can get a response for, you know, something that we kind of gave up on. So I'm actually very optimistic and excited about that technology. I hope the world uh, starts to embrace it even more with years going by and, and you know, safety's there uh, for COVID and, and so forth. So that's that's kind of my hopes going forward is that we can kind of embrace um, really the amazing things that have happened out of COVID, which is getting vaccines and therapeutics within a year. I mean, unheard of prior to this pandemic. So that's a, kind of a good thing. Mm -hmm. Well, we could stay on these topics for hours, <laughs> but we, we do have to wrap it up. So any final thoughts or, or things you want to leave the listeners with as we wrap this up? You know, I will leave a couple of things. You know, we had talked about before the show about um, some recent things going on. So PEV, which is a human uh, para echovirus, which is an enterovirus, that's kind of popped up. You can see this uh, on CDC. 
it's a, it's a it's a virus that's showing up in children. It's kind of a typical common uh, clinical pathogen. It's from the family Picarnoviridae, so it's actually in the same family as polio, uh, but it's a it's an echovirus. And so it can be very mild to asymptomatic, but can also cause really severe meningitis and things like that. So we've had some issues with it and we're watching it. So be aware if you're a parent of a young person uh, that there's kind of this new, uh, I shouldn't say new, there's a virus that is showing up more clinically called PEV, human paroechovirus, and it causes meningitis, encephalitis, and things like that. So don't don't be overly a, a, you know concerned, but do keep your eyes open. If you start seeing um, children with high fever, uh, and and it won't go away, especially that neonatal infant uh, that has neuro you know neurologic involvement, they're suddenly becoming, you know, not not engaged with you and there might be some mental uh things going on there just kind of keep that in your wheelhouse but i'm not overly concerned with that right now but it is something coming up but i wanted to mention that because you asked if there's anything i wanted to to leave with your listeners and i think i'll i'd like to leave this with you um people often ask you know what are some things i can listen to or watch for and, I, and I'd like to give you a couple um, if you haven't known about these. We know about this, Stephanie, because we're medical lab people and healthcare knows about these. But the CDC does put out something called an HAN. It's a health alert network. HAN, health alert network. You can Google it. You can go to CDC's website. You can get on that list. You can be a citizen and kind of get on that list. Um, so the thing I just told you about, that's that's an HAN, the echovirus issue right now in the U.S. Another one that I've followed for 30 years, and I often forget to mention this, is ProMed, P-R-O-M-E-D. If you Google it, it's a service from the Infectious Disease Society, uh, the IDSA. Um, I saw back in November of 19, because I read them, either weekly or occasionally if something pops up daily and I know I'm looking for it. But I saw this, imagine this, in November of 19, I saw reports of a pneumonia-like virus in Wuhan, China, <laughs> right? And it turned into SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, I'm looking for stuff like that. But as a citizen, you know, they're pretty straightforward. They usually get case numbers, you know, kind of what's happening. Is there things going on? They do new reports of maybe something happening out of a, a clinic in Asia somewhere. And, and you shouldn't freak out about it, but it is a, um, it's a radar. It's an infectious disease radar that's really global. Uh, and so if you're, you know, reputable, there's some sources for you. The, the HAN network out of CDC and ProMed out of the IDSA two things that I'd look at usually weekly uh, and just do a quick skim. You know, is there anything weird going on or, and I don't, again, don't obsess over them, but you know, it might be something to take a peek at. Uh, and then of course, listening to your physicians, uh, following those reputable sites, listening to Stephanie's podcast uh, and, and her colleagues podcast. It's so critical. Um, and for those of you out there who are professionals in our field and, and healthcare in general, Start speaking up, start writing, uh, talk to your churches, your communities, your schools, be that subject matter expert that you are 
You are. You know more than most people in this uh, in the world that are not in healthcare or in research or in science. And if you don't fill that void with accurate information, someone will. And unfortunately, it's usually misinformation or panicked information. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. I love talking to you and to your audience on this show. Well, thank you for coming back. And again, uh, great information and uh, a great insight on how laboratory professionals can continue to be advocates during these times when <laughs> people are looking to us as part of that healthcare circle. <clears throat> Dr. Rody, why don't you tell our listeners how they can continue to reach out to you? I'm sure people are going to have more questions after this. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity uh, to do so. So I'm on Twitter, at Rodney Rody. That's R-O-D-N-E-Y-R-O-H-D-E. I'm on LinkedIn. I am on Facebook. And I'm on, I have a YouTube channel uh, that I'm building slowly. Uh, so those are kind of my primary channels. I haven't dipped into TikTok or or Insta yet. Uh, it's just, as Stephanie, you know, it's <laughs> difficult to juggle too many of these, but I do try to stay active on those. Mm-hmm. And then I have a professional website through Texas State University. And so, again, if you Google my name, that usually will pop up pretty quickly. I'm also a, a writer, a contributing author for uh, the American Society for Microbiology, uh, for the conversation, which is another kind of national um, uh, site for these types of topics. And, you know, my email's out there. I can't answer a million of them a day. But if something comes up that's really something you're, you know, you're worried about or something like that, you can email me and I will do my best to get back to you. It may not be immediately, um, but um, I'm associated with Texas State University. And so that's a great way to to find me and uh, reach out if you need to. Well, Dr. Rody, thank you for returning today. This has been some great information um, about monkeypox and everything else. So thank you. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Be sure to uh, subscribe to Dr. Rody's YouTube page. <laughs> Check out all his previous talks and articles and other bodies of work. I mean, there's tons of great information that he's uh, put out there for everybody to listen to. Um, great uh, job security for <laughs> health <laughs> laboratory professionals and microbiology professionals. Uh, but in all seriousness, great information that we all need to know and we need to continue to be aware of um, to just be good citizens um, and good health professionals as advocates during these times, like I said. Uh, if you like what you heard today and you want to listen to our previous shows, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on any podcast platform or directimpactbroadcasting.com or on LabVine. We're on LabVine now, so jump over to LabVine and get you a free membership uh, and listen to a few of our shows. You can follow me at Stephanie Y. Whitehead on all of my social media platforms. I'm not on TikTok either, but I am on Instagram, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, and uh, Twitter. Twitter. Uh, tune in uh, next week to hear another amazing episode of the Elaborate Topics show. And until then, all of you guys have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Elaborate Topics, where your hosts discussed relevant strategies for laboratory professionals. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and listen to us on directimpactbroadcasting.com. Stay tuned for another episode with information you can use to excel in your laboratory career.